0: Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN, 94.1 FM, Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM, WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR, Public Reality Radio. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly. FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, we have granted Brad and Desi freedom and independence, and you have me, Angie Coyro, host of Indeep Radio, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Hi. Not a very big shock. Political angst took no holiday. Lots of Americans gave up barbecue and family time to work on saving the country over the weekend. We'll talk in a few minutes with Mike Hirsch of the Progressive Democrats of America about how that went. How do you measure the impact of protests anyway? One thing I wonder about is whether there's such a thing as too frequent demonstrations. When does it become a a dull roar in the background that everyone's too used to hearing? Or, this would be the ideal case, of course, this flow of marches and petitions and sit-ins and overflow crowds at town halls signals that the American people do not accept having a clown in the White House, will not eventually sit down and shut up, will not accept having their health insurance taken away, will not sit by and watch immigrants be told their grandmothers are not family will not accept breathing air that's newly polluted by companies cut loose from environmental restrictions, will not let the handmaid's tale play out on their watch, will not watch protected species suddenly enter the books as extinct. Mike is going to address all that. And why the concept of not just economics, but economic justice can't get lost in all these discussions. From appropriate government's pardon me, from appropriate governance to the environment to throwing a dangerous madman out of the White House. On that note, once in a while a hashtag breaks loose from Twitter into the real world, and in the wake of Trump's absolutely juvenile, irresponsible and very badly done, I might add, video of him beating up a CNN figure, the hashtag 25th Amendment now caught on. And it moved off of Twitter into the larger media, which raises this question. It does not beg the question. I wish people would stop using beg the question wrong, but that is for my own show. Can we, the American people, emboldened by our alleged representatives in Congress, make the case that Donald Trump has shown himself as incompetent, unfit, even too mentally ill to keep representing the United States? He's cost us another chunk of credibility and support internationally. I don't know if you noticed. This is as reported in the Huffington Post. We are not even considered friends anymore by Germany. To quote from the Post, in their campaign program for the German election, Chancellor Angela Merkel's conservatives have dropped the term friend in describing the relationship with the U.S. Four years ago, The joint program of her Christian Democratic Union and its Bavarian sister party, the Christian Social Union, referred to the United States as Germany's most important friend outside of Europe. The 2013 program also described the friendship with Washington as a cornerstone of Germany's international relations and talked about strengthening transatlantic economic ties through the removal of trade barriers. But... The word friends and friendship are missing now from the latest election program. Entitled for a Germany in which we live well and happily, which Merkel and CSU leadership Hurst Seehofer presented on Monday ahead of the September 24th election. Instead, the U.S. is described as Germany's, quote, most important partner outside of Europe. Well, we just went from warm and friendly to cold and clinical, did we not? Post article concludes CDU officials were not immediately available to comment on the change in the wording, end quote. So take this. Take the incessant, unbalanced tweeting. Take the arguable incitement of violence against journalists. More of that later. Do we have enough evidence to oust him from the Oval Office? And what exactly would that take? Meanwhile, in the let them eat cake category, have you seen these pictures? This is, these were taken by Andrew Mills with New Jersey Advanced Media, and they came out via the Associated Press, and he found pictures of Chris Christie, Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey, and his family on the beach. Now, a governor and his family on the beach would not be a rare thing, except there's nothing around them for acres and acres. How could that be? Because a government shutdown is underway, because Governor Christie has managed the state so well, and they had to close the beaches because you realize beaches are paid for with public money, and if there's no budget, there's no public money, so they closed the beaches. Except Marie Antoinette here, excuse me, Chris Christie, decided to take advantage of that vast empty space of sand and plunked himself down with a few select cronies and family And there he is in this striking, striking image. He's in his chair, two or three other chairs, two or three blankets, a scattering of friends. Oh, look, there's someone playing some sort of game with a cute paddle, somebody else holding the beer. What a happy little gathering of the very privileged few, of the folks who. Gosh, if they just looked far enough over to the left, no pun intended, but they'd have to look far over to the left to see where there was an open beach that the mere minions and peons had to crowd onto together. And crowded they are. It's kind of like comparing the pictures of the Barack Obama inauguration and the Donald Trump inauguration. Because in the one beach, you can't see the ground for the people. And where Christie sits, you can't see the people for all that sand. You know, it's not the first time we've seen such glaring examples of the great divide in America. I'm kind of wondering, though, given how many people were out there making the point this weekend that we're not going to take it anymore, if this sort of thing is gradually helping to build to a crescendo, if people who can't relate to anything, if they don't have the bandwidth to think that hard about politics or basic healthy goodness of life in America, if they can look at a picture as stark as this, Chris Christie and the privileged few on their very own beach, while all of the have-nots huddle off to the side in a bunch. I wonder if that's the kind of thing that creates bigger and bigger crowds every time There's a protest out there. We're going to have more on protesting in our next segment. In fact, we're going to talk about how the protesting shifts from impeachment to the health care issue, which continues to grind forward. I thought it would be good, though, before we take this break, to take a moment to appreciate the individuals who left their home and their family and their friends over the weekend to go ahead and attend those marches. To demand impeachment, whether they saw that as a realistic demand, that if enough people got out there and shrieked for it, we could get him impeached, or just to say, we are not happy. We are not happy. And let that have whatever impact it will. Now, I had a plan to go to the San Francisco Impeachment March march myself. As it worked out, I couldn't do that. But the woman I had planned to go with actually did get out there. And Jan McKim is one of those American treasures. She is a stalwart. She is a real believer in the effects of hitting the streets. She is also, and she's kind of a vanishing example of this, she is very measured in her consideration of Trump supporters. She is one of the many thousands that we rely on to get out there for us when we can't, and to speak for us sanely, perhaps, when we can't. So for your ears, I talked to her about the weekend's march and whether the response to protests have changed since the election. Jan, it's good to have you on the line.
1: Thank you, Angie. It's nice to be with you.
0: Well, let's talk about what you saw. There are always fabulous signs. What were some of the good ones that you saw? Oh,
1: there were so many good ones. There was a statue of our dear Lady Liberty that somebody actually made out of cloth with the torch up in the air. And uh, another person made a cheese it with Donald Trump hair on top. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is beautiful. I love that. I was afraid you were going to tell me the Statue of Liberty had that head, that head of horrible hair on top. I'm glad they didn't do no, that. No,
1: it's just, you know, people were very clever and um a woman had a picture of a spider in a tangled web and it had a Donald's head on it on the spider.
0: Jan, a lot of people gave up an important part of their holiday weekend, which generally means travel or family are just kicking back. And like you, they decided to go make a stand and said, so can you tell me what, what went into that decision for you? Why did you decide to give up part of your weekend for this?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, it was planned far ahead, and I thought, well, here's a good way to send a message and get some exercise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this was and ultimately so, a selfish we decision. We
1: left <laughs> city, so... Uh, We went up there, and oh, it was a beautiful day. It was festive, and there were good feelings all around. No problems, no angry protesters or anything, so it's always been a good experience. We've been on several marches, the uh,
0: Women's March and the Science March, so we were very pleased. Do you have any impression about how the reception of the various marches and parades and protests have changed because... Early on, when I was doing some anti-Trump demonstrations, we had some really evil people running their cars by several times just to flip us off and saying horrible things. And it sounds like you had a a really positive, positive experience. So is that kind of a tracking that you've noticed, that it's gone to a greater acceptance or a more positive experience?
1: Well, um, I'll tell you, in San Francisco, uh, which is a liberal neighborhood we've always noticed that it's been very peaceful and I never saw any negative attacks against our marches when we were in Palo Alto for I think it was the Equal Rights Amendment Mm -hmm. um, we were along one of the major thoroughfares there and I just noticed one man in a big huge SUV went by and all he had all he did was he had his thumbs down,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and here we were we had signs for the Equal Rights Amendment for women and you know I thought, well, that's really sad, you know that that's how he feels about mm-hmm. women having equal rights,
2: mm-hmm. but there
1: are people in our community, even in you know the Bay Area, who have very strong views about or against the anti Trump movement. And I I think that it's important not to engage with them in a negative way, but to try to open the discourse with people like that. It's sometimes impossible because they're just going to be, you know, the way they are. You know, there's there's alt-right people, and I think it's better not to engage with them. But for other people who are willing to talk about their feelings and why they are supporting Trump then I think it can be useful. And somebody who inspires me to do this is um, Bill Moyers. Oh, he's just a national treasure, really. And this was his approach with all of his experience to engage more people from differing backgrounds and present thoughtful responses to people who have different opinions. And I guess what... What dismays me is the the breakdown of our democracy, and I think that doing these marches is the most democratic way that I can express myself mm-hmm.
0: Will it continue to be worth it to you to i mean we're in for the long haul, and by we, i mean anybody who wants to see a better job being done in the White House be you know see everyone in America being taken into consideration with legislation. What will tell you that it's, it's worth it to do one more march? It's worth it to do one more protest?
1: Oh, I believe it's worth it because our, you know, Jackie Speier, Dianne Feinstein, Kamala Harris, our senators, and our representative in San Mateo County, um, they say it's worth it because it's working. And we fought back against uh, Trump care and, you know, God willing, it won't be passed. Um, and I think that this is one way that Republicans, when they go home to their town halls, get an earful of what Americans are thinking and needing. And, um, some of them have, uh, decided not to vote for Trump care. So each step along the way, we've got to fight and we've got to continue marching. That's what, my plan is. I mean, I'm retired and I can do this. Yet there were a lot of people there much younger than me who are probably working and fitting this time in. And I think that the country has been revitalized as far as the Democratic base to express their opinions on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and confront what is very upsetting to all of us uh, that's going on in our country right now, with a president that's just, uh, he's just running the country off the tracks.
0: Jan McKim, she was up at the San Francisco protest over the weekend and apparently will continue to do her job holding up those signs. Jan, thank you so much for that first-person report. Oh, you're welcome, Angie. And that is Jan's report from the ground. Next up, the ground plan for what's next, including sit-ins this week at government offices, then making the case Trump is not just a nincompoop, but a non-complishmentist nincompoop Say that. real. (laughs) Say that three times real fast. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't
3: noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. to make a one-time donation, or even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks.
2: Yes, you
0: I'm Angie Corrow, in for Brad today. Right now, it's health insurance and the make-no-mistake unfettered, undeterred efforts of the GOP to take away health security of millions of Americans in the service of further enriching the rich. And this has reached the point here of the completely bizarre. Because individually, Republicans are sneaking home. Instead of arriving proudly, they are ducking interviews and encounters and phone calls. They're privy to the same polls that we are. Tim Marson pointed out in Newsweek that support for Donald Trump's impeachment is way higher than his latest approval rating. An excerpt from that? For a minute there, he says things were looking up for President Donald Trump. By late last week, his approval rating was hovering around 40 percent. But then... Trump spent the holiday weekend railing against the press and blasting off tweet storms. You know, even his, even his supporters said, will you please lay off the Twitter keyboard? Nope. You know exactly how easy it is to tell Donald Trump what to do. So back to Tim's article. The president's approval rating took a plunge. Gallup's tracking poll pegged Trump's approval at just 37% to start off July, while disapproval stood at 57 percent. That approval rating is dismal. Around this point, he notes in his first term, for example, former President Barack Obama had a 60 percent approval rating. Far more people support impeaching him than support the job he's doing in the Oval Office. A survey in recent weeks from Public Policy Polling, a firm that does public surveys as well as polling for Democratic candidates, found that 47% of voters supported impeaching Trump. Americans could perhaps feel that way, he notes, because 49% believe the president had obstructed justice in the ongoing investigation into his ties in Russia, ties to Russia, according to the public policy polling survey. Now, the Republicans, not counting Trump, who's his own country, The Republicans are seeing these polls. They are seeing the uproar around the health care reports. They're seeing the demands to know exactly what it is the Republicans would like to do, let alone why they keep doing it. And yet, and yet, and yet, the Republicans will not concede this is neither the time nor the way to fix what remains of the health care mess. And here's the guts of that. They cannot admit without endangering their standing with the rabid few that anything Barack Obama did could be right or creditable. If they acknowledge that the ACA has done some good, and it has markedly done some good, they lose the support of those who they still have in their pockets. They have created the situation. And they have nothing better to do now than perpetuate it. Even in the face of almost guaranteed failure, which doesn't mean their health care moves won't succeed. If they do succeed, the fallout will be dismal and perhaps decades long. It's kind of like watching water circle the drain. You know, once once that impetus has been gained, it just goes and goes and goes right down the drain. So the Republican Congress members see all this going on. They do press ahead with what's conceivably a suicidal leap. They're going to consign the grandmas and the babies and, yes, the rabid Trump supporters to the specter of bankruptcy or death if they get sick. Fear not. Another protest looms. The Progressive Democrats of America are the folks who organized the impeachment marches. Now they are working on sit-ins against the decimation of our healthcare infrastructure. Mike Hirsch is their communications director, and he talked to me earlier today. Mike, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Well, the San Francisco turnout was great. Um, I saw at. I saw a tweet. We know how reliable that is. But I did see a tweet asserting that the Los Angeles attendance at that demonstration was more than the inauguration. And even if that's not true, it's pretty funny. Um, I'm wondering what kind of success you charted around the country.
4: Just all very
5: positive. We had some people who, and it's kind of uh, um, very uh, um, kind of heartening that some people think that if we call to impeach Trump that he's going to be kicked out of office like within a matter of days. We have some people. Are you crazy? You're going to get Mike Pence. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not how it works. You know, it's like I, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine, and I said, it's not like we have a magic wand like Harry Potter and can just like say, you know, impeach him out, and you know, boom, there's like a, a bolt of light, and Trump is uh, taken out of office. Um, we're just trying to get a, a good conversation started. And to indicate to Trump that we've taken this very seriously uh you know every day it seems like there's either new uh bizarre behavior on his part that make makes it clear that he's not qualified to be president,
2: mm-hmm. or there
5: are very you know uh, um, uh, um, there are allegations of wrongdoing that you know and that's they're taking on various forms. So we're you know, we know that if we have a a march for impeachment and a lot of people agree with it, uh, it's still going to be a long, hard slog. And the idea is to both uh, um, educate the American public that, you know, there's a whole lot of outrageous things going on and don't just turn the channel or, or brush it off. This is some very serious degradation of our entire political system. And a lot of people are wise to it. And we want our neighbors and friends and everybody else to understand just how serious all this is.
0: Well, you know, Clayton Carlson at uh, at Stanford, he's with the Martin Luther King Center. He made a really important distinction. And what you're saying reminds me of that. Pardon me. His name is Claiborne Carson. Don't want to screw that up. Uh, he heads the Martin okay. Luther King Center. He makes an important distinction between people marching in the streets And what that does for public attitude and people working on the legislative side and the lawsuit side and all of those. And they really are two separate functions. So when you say that all these people are out there in the street calling for impeachment, you know, you're right. It's not about, okay, now we're all going to impeach him tomorrow. It's making it public record and drawing attention to everything that's going so badly wrong right now. So, from there, let's move on to the sit ins and, and what you hope to accomplish with those. And of course, those are, those are aimed at, at health insurance.
5: Well, we're um, gearing up actually for a bunch of sit ins at Senate offices. We've got over 4,300 people already committed to do that. Mm-hmm. So, we're, we're very excited about that. That's going to be happening this coming Thursday. And the uh, point of that is to stop the Trump care legislation in its tracks. And just to demonstrate to the U.S. senators that we really care a lot about our health care and we are not buying into this uh, um, uh, reconciliation um, legislation that they're talking about that we know is going to turn Medicaid into a a wreckage and it's also going to throw millions of people off of the health care they already have when progressive Democrats of America and a lot of people we're working with know that if the Affordable Care Act did not go far enough and going backwards is not an option, we have to go forward. And we want our neighbors and friends and everybody else to understand just how serious all this is.
0: You know, Clayton Carlson at, uh, at Stanford, he's with the Martin Luther King Center. He made a really important distinction. And what you're saying reminds me of that. Pardon me, his name is Claiborne Carson. Don't want to screw that up. Uh, he heads the Martin Luther okay. King Center. And he makes an important distinction between people marching in the streets And what that does for public attitude and people working on the legislative side and the lawsuit side and all of those. And they really are two separate functions. So when you say that all these people are out there in the street calling for impeachment, you know, you're right. It's not about, okay, now we're all going to impeach him tomorrow. It's making it public record and drawing attention to everything that's going on so badly wrong right now. So from there, let's move on to the sit-ins and, and what you hope to accomplish with those. And of course, those are, those are aimed at, at health insurance. So the sit-ins will take place where? And again, what are you hoping to accomplish with those?
5: Well, the sit-ins will take place at various Senate offices all across, all across the country. And that's going to be this Thursday. Uh, and what we're hoping to accomplish is to show senators that they can't just kind of slip this by people that they, you know, that, that if um, they vote the wrong way on this, and uh, increasingly a lot of Republican senators are having second thoughts about it.
2: Mm-hmm. But
5: what we want to de- do is demonstrate to them that their own voters are watching them, and this is a uh, threshold issue for them. This is, uh, you know, if you, if you, uh, what um, our, our allies in the National Nurses United have said is, if you take our health care, we take your job as a senator. You know, we lose our health care, you lose your job. And it's really that simple. Um, PDA was founded in 2004. One of the things, one of the major guiding principles that we've had all along is to have um, an expanded and improved Medicare for all healthcare system Mm -hmm. with no insurance companies uh, gouging people, no pharmaceutical companies ripping people off. And unfortunately, the Senate bill takes us in the opposite direction. It gives more power to um, the insurance companies and it also um, takes money out of Medicaid, which is completely irrelevant to the whole situation, and just gives it to the very wealthiest 1% and even the top fraction of 1% in the form of huge tax cuts that they absolutely don't need. So what it is, it's a matter of, you know, uh, a money or your life kind of a bill. Well, they, they want to take our money and give it to rich people and, and take our lives because we won't have the health coverage that we need.
0: One of the things that worries me about health coverage, Mike, it's awfully difficult to follow between the technicalities about the exchanges. A new article today came out that exchanges that are available range from none in some counties to four in others. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about making these complicated issues clear to the average person, because one thing that the right does so effectively is they gin up anger with very simplistic statements about they're trying to take away your health care or Obama sucks somewhere on that spectrum. Right, exactly. And when you're trying to draw attention to a more complex, nuanced situation, how do you go about finessing that?
5: Well, that's a very good point. And one of the things that we've talked about for some time is that the Republicans had a very tough time coming up with a Republican alternative to Obamacare. And the reason for that is Obamacare is the Republican alternative to single payer, and let me explain that. It came out of um, the thoughts that Nixon had, uh, uh, Richard Nixon. And at that time, Ted Kennedy was the leading spokesperson for healthcare, And he said, this is a very conservative plan. I'm not going to be for it. And uh, Mitt Romney, was, uh, the, when he was the governor of Massachusetts, uh, sat down and, and, and said, I'm not going to allow any um, uh, Medicare for all style. Legislation in, in Massachusetts, I insist on having it be a corporate-centered plan because I mean Mitt Romney is kind of a corporation in shoes,
2: mm-hmm. so
5: he was all for that. And the Heritage Foundation, which is hardly any kind of a bastion of left-wing thinking, um, came up with the mandate and a bunch of other things, and it all came into this kind of a um, mixed bag. And it's not you know that the, the came out as the Affordable Care Act. Uh, involved a lot of Republican ideas, and they took a lot of input from Republicans, and it took a long time, if you remember, for them to put the bill together.
2: Mm-hmm. But at the
5: end of the day, it was a Republican bill. And because of that, it had all these giveaways to corporations and protections for profiteers and all this other stuff, and it's unnecessarily complicated. What we really, and, and like you said, it's very hard to explain to people what the Affordable Care Act. Um, Nancy Pelosi famously said, Well, we'll know how it works once we pass it, which is, you know, even if you're thinking that, why would you say it? It's, you know, it's <laughs> a exactly. side issue that maybe
2: maybe
5: she's not the best uh, uh, messenger for our side. And maybe we should, you know, take out a, an ad on Craigslist and see if we can find somebody to be a little bit more uh, articulate <laughs> and forceful and. Effective In getting the message out But the message is really this Healthcare is a basic human right If you don't have healthcare You really don't have freedom We talked about freedom and liberty With the 4th of July coming up And how important that was The, the right to life, liberty and pursuit of happiness Well, you can't do any of that If you don't have your health And everybody knows that So the question is Are we going to join countries like France And Canada and England And uh, um, Costa Rica you know, the the huge superpower of Costa Rica, uh, Cuba. <laughs> uh, these are all places that are, you know, not uh, uh, the envy of the world in terms of uh, economic power and, and prosperity. But they've all managed to give health care to every single person in their country. And the only reason that we don't do it is because by hoarding it for only some people, and letting other people go without it, you can scare people into not quitting their jobs and you can scare people into working long hours and not daring to ask for a raise and, uh, or, or a day off or, or a vacation because they know if they lose their job, they lose their health care. And along comes the Affordable Care Act to make things a little bit better.
2: Mm-hmm. But
5: even under the Affordable Care Act, there are still millions of Americans who are not covered. And as you said, these exchanges are drying up. These um, healthcare care insurance companies are merging with one another, and pretty soon there's only going to be like one or two. And if you have a choice between one or two or three they are all in collusion with each other, that's not a choice at all. You're going to pay whatever they demand, and there's no need for that. Um, the Medicare program in the United States is very popular. It has an overhead of a few pennies on the dollar. It's run very efficiently. Mm -hmm. And because, um, you know, we say very clearly it's not just Medicare for all, it's expanded and improved Medicare for all. And by improved, we mean no co-pays, no deductibles, no lifetime caps. None of this, uh, um, you know, filling out forms or arguing with some, um, you know, like the uh, Republicans say, oh, you're going to have a government bureaucrat. You're going to have somebody like, you know, like somebody from the post office. No, it has nothing to do with that. Government will only be picking up the bill for it, which is fine. You know, it's very efficient to have a one payer doing all that, and Medicare is doing that very well. And uh, um, we want to extend that to everybody. and you know, it would be um, basically. You know, people talk about oh, you know, we can do it like France and England, Germany, and all these other countries, but we'll do it in an American way. You know, it's the Fourth of July. Have a good old American healthcare plan, and it will be the best in the world. Uh, we're already paying more than enough for it. We're paying, you know, close to twice as much as the average uh, um, person in another country where they are covering all their people. And the only difference is that we're also paying, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a, a year in salaries plus all kinds of overhead and uh, bonuses for executives who do not provide health care. They don't write prescriptions. They don't research uh, cures for cancer or you know leukemia anything like that all they do is uh put money in their pocket and tell people you can't have health care and even if you do have insurance they'll tell you well we don't cover that
0: well in so, fact mike i think you're getting you know, to the heart of it and i think the guts of what needs to change in america and i don't know how incrementally we can do this but i think what americans need to examine is what it's moral to make a profit from and i i I'm glad to see that we're moving toward that discussion, but it just seems sometimes that we're so far away. And as you say, a lot of that is based in fear. If you're afraid you're about to lose something that goes to the heart of your well being and existence, then what it's okay to profit from seems like such a, you know, angels on the head of a pin discussion.
4: Exactly,
5: exactly. And what, we're, what we do now, what we see now is when um, Obama was pushing the uh, Republican alternative to single payer. Republicans attacked him as if he was the you know, devil incarnate, and this is a horrible thing, and, oh, there's going to be death panels, and you know, your grandma's going to die, and your kids are going to die. Mm. And now, when we see Trump is in there, he's making all these horror stories a reality. Because if you take Medicaid away from people, and they're talking about taking billions of dollars out of Medicaid, and that's a lot of working people, that's uh, veterans, uh, people who have uh, disabilities that can't work, There are a lot of children on Medicaid, and then there are also a lot of elderly people who paid into the Medicaid program every working day of their life so they could retire with dignity. And now here comes Trump and some Republicans saying, well, we're going to take all that away from you. We're going to break the promise that we've made to you, and we're going to do it because some people who already have more money than they and their children and their grandchildren could spend and could even think about spending – We're going to just give them money that you've paid into the system. And it's uh, ridiculous. It's unjust. And it's highly immoral. And that's why we're sitting in the Senate offices to get them to knock it off.
0: Mike, i got one more question for you. I'm kind of throwing one off the the left field here, but we're both left of field, so what the heck. Uh, I
5: love that field.
0: (laughs) I was looking at the Wikipedia page for Progressive Democrats of America, and I looked over at the talk section, and there was this discussion about whether it was okay to use the word economic justice in the description of your group. And what I found fascinating was that there are people who don't make the distinction between saying that PDA works in the field of economics and works toward economic justice. And it never occurred to me before that that there are people who don't get the distinction. So can you make your case why economic Mm -hmm. justice is its own legitimate pursuit?
5: Well, economic justice is very important. That's what propelled Bernie Sanders from a very little-known, obscure senator from Vermont. To uh, the most popular political leader in our country today. Uh, I don't think it's even close. I don't even know if there is a second place. I think they're all unpopular except for Bernie. Um, And he ran almost strictly on economic justice to the point where he was criticized for not looking at racial justice and some other things that are also very important. And um, he course corrected and sat down with Black Lives Matter and others. But In terms of what PDA is doing, we were founded on a number of principles. One of them was economic and social justice. And what that comes down to is this. In a country as wealthy as ours where we have money for the most sophisticated weaponry and all kinds of, um, you know, Star Wars kind of technology, why is it that some children are going to sleep hungry? And why is it that they're going to school buildings that are leaking and falling apart and they're too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter and why are our our, uh, public spaces falling apart and why is our public infrastructure like our uh, public you know mass transit even our roads and bridges are crumbling and and without economic and social justice we have a very harsh terrible society and it doesn't have to be that way the PDA stands up for economic and social justice. We have a team that works on that specifically, and it involves uh, voice in the workplace, $15 minimum wage, a living wage index to, uh, to inflation, um, eradicating homelessness and hunger in our country, um, ensuring that everybody who wants a job can either get a job or get training so they'll be part of the new emerging economy. And these are all basic common sense things that... Our country settled on during the Great Depression, and we had a huge consensus at that time that there's an important role for government to play alongside with uh, civic organizations and schools and uh, faith-based uh, organizations and everybody else. But we, the people, demand that our government promote the general welfare. So even in the Constitution, and that includes economic and social justice.
0: Mike Hirsch is communications director for the Progressive Democrats of America. He's also executive director of the Keep Our Promise Coalition, the Montgomery County Progressive Alliance, and co-president of Montgomery County, Maryland's NOW chapter. I just wanted to throw all that in there, Mike, because it's amazing you find time to talk to us. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Up next on the broadcast, a mental health professional on the 25th Amendment NOW movement. It is kind of a parlor game by now to watch Trump's actions and to find them on the chart of what makes a sociopath. If it were bingo, (laughs) the card would be full. But David Reese warns us to leave the diagnosis to the pros and to focus instead on doable actions to get Trump assessed and potentially removed. I'm Angie Cuero. This is The Bradcast.
2: As designer. I went low
0: I'm Angie Coiro. First, do no harm. That is the start of the oath every doctor takes, the Hippocratic Oath, pledging allegiance first and foremost to the health of the patient. Now, here's a poser. When the patient is the country and the country stands in harm's way, what is the obligation of the doctor? Beyond the Hippocratic Oath is the more modern component, the duty to warn. And that's what comes into play when the state of the patient has the potential to harm themselves or another party. That is when a doctor is obligated to break free of privacy constraints and do what they can to make sure do no harm gets extended to everybody. We see this in the case of suicidal patients. We see this in the case of people who are threatening violence to yet a third party. The doctor can't just ponder standing up. Hmm, should I do that? No, the the doctor has to stand up in the name of potentially saving lives or at least mitigating harm to other human beings. A psychiatrist, David Reese, has been patiently explaining this on social and mainstream media. So I got hold of him and I asked him to talk me through what it would take to officially get Trump evaluated, removed, or any combination thereof. So let's talk to David Reese. Let's talk to David Reese about this. He is a a clinical psychiatrist. He's a medical examiner. And if you follow him on Twitter at DMR Dynamics, you'll find out that he's following the issues of Donald Trump and sanity and removal pretty darn closely. Uh, David Reese, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. My pleasure to be with you.
0: Uh, There's so much flying around with the 25th Amendment now hashtag, and that's gotten a lot further than Twitter. It's getting media coverage as well. So let's go into exactly what it takes, first, on principle, removing someone from office because they're incompetent. Secondly, how this specifically applies to Donald Trump. We heard murmurings from very early on that this man was not healthy enough mentally to handle the office of president. And arguably, we've seen more and more evidence of that every day. Let's talk about what that means in the first place. Let's define some terms here. What would it mean if he were mentally incompetent?
4: Well, it's really a very problematic area because as opposed to almost every other type of job where there are criteria, there are really none for for the president or for any politician. Uh, For instance, I do what's called fitness for duty evaluations. Uh, I've done it for school systems, for police departments, but also for private industries, uh, low-level government workers, where what you're evaluating is not a legal competence, but basically whether there are psychological factors or problems that interfere with the safe performance of specific work duties. Mm. Now, obviously, if that were you know, applicable to the president, you would have to look at what are the presidential duties, president's duties, what are the risks, what are the dangers. Uh, But the 25th Amendment was written long before we had DSM or anything like that, and basically just says generally that certain people, basically cabinet members and vice presidents, and then by vote of the Congress, deem the president unfit with no actual clinical criteria, which would be applied to a teacher or a police officer or even a refuse collector.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we know that one thing, and I keep hearing this again and again, is that it's not appropriate for anyone in the medical-slash-psychiatric mental health professions to comment on someone whom they have not uh, personally examined. That's a difficulty when you're talking about, from the layperson's point of view, looking at Donald Trump and saying, these are not the actions of a well person, and then trying to make an actual case that he is not a well person to the extent that he can't perform his duty. So how do we climb that particular ladder?
4: Yeah, uh, you know, that's a complexity that, that really came about, you know, as there's what's called the Goldwater Rule from back when Barry Goldwater was running for president. But really, that was very different, because at that point, you had a number of mental health people who were looking at Goldwater's positions and basically psychoanalyzing what might be behind it or why he may be taking certain positions. And that was felt to be really not very objective, which I agree it wasn't, and diagnosing from a distance, which it really isn't appropriate to say a person has a specific diagnosis without meeting them, without reviewing their entire history, et cetera, and without reviewing their medical history to know if maybe it's a neurological problem. But what we're talking about now is very different. Uh, what I see is not making a diagnosis; it's commenting on the significance of public behaviors. Now, is he the same behind closed doors? Your guess is as good as mine, and I think we could have good evidence to say he probably is. But who knows? You know, like I say jokingly, we don't know if he's really Andy Kaufman putting on a, <laughs> a stick.
0: That would explain That's not so much.
4: Exactly. <laughs> It would, and for a while, actually, what he was running, I thought it might be, but seriously, you know, as much as there's a lot of evidence that says what you see is what you get, clinically, you can't make a diagnosis, and it would be inappropriate to say he has this disorder or that disorder. On the other hand, you can comment on behavior. That's not making a diagnosis. It's making an informed observation. Uh, The example I use is if you see someone running and they fall down and they get up limping, as a doctor I would say, hey, you you ought to stop running and get that checked out before you go back to running again. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not saying whether they have a sprain or a fracture or they just were tired, but it's saying I saw something that's potentially a problem. That's what I see as totally appropriate outside of Goldwater and very significant to say that there is good reason to believe that whether it's a sprain, a fracture, or fatigue, he's unfit to serve, and that there needs to be an evaluation as to what is the diagnosis specifically, and can he carry out these duties safely and effectively, which all public evidence says no.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's address the fact that some people claim, some people say that if you attack uh, President Trump that you are picking on things that wouldn't be relevant with any other president, you're unfair, you're biased, et cetera. Let's talk about very specific things that you have seen that you believe to be alarming.
4: Uh, what I have said is the, the most obvious is the constant reference to himself. And putting all of his statements, whether they be on policy, whether they be on the results of the election, on everything in terms of the impact on him and his emotions. Uh, if you look at it, you, know, you can't really say he's an ideologue because what does he stand for other than being satisfied mm-hmm. as Donald Trump? Uh, so, and that's also where it's different from Goldwater. I don't care whether you agree with what position he's taking today or not and i'm not even saying whether i agree with the position or not what i'm saying is that the putting himself at the center of everything and often inappropriately so where the situation does not call for him to be talking about himself is an indication of something that's very likely problematic and obviously the more we see with the inappropriate tweets and the sexist tweets the more you see that what this man is functioning on is basically his own self-esteem and his own feelings. So whether you agree with his proposals or not, if they're coming out of his feelings rather than rational thought, Houston, we've got a problem.
0: What's the difference between that meaning he's just a bad president and that meaning that (laughs) he's, you know, that he's incompetent, that he's unfit? And what's the distinction you're making there?
4: Uh, You know, it really is a spectrum and there's a gray area. And, you know, the fact is we do have to respect that there's a gray area. But I think in this case, it's so far extreme that we're outside of the gray area. You know, if we take Bush, Bush W. as an example, you know, there were people who said this or that about his personality and it may or may not be. But it never really impacted judgment, how he presented inappropriate behaviors, you could disagree with him all you want, and there's maybe damn good reason to, um, but you couldn't say that he was really inappropriate. Uh, with Trump, it goes far beyond that. I mean, this is something that, you know, if if your aunt or uncle were doing this at a Thanksgiving dinner, you'd say something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, with, with W, I felt it would have been an, inappropriate to bring up psychological logical issues, because whether he may have had some, it really didn't impact his propriety. This is very different. And this is not focused, again, on specific policies. It's focused on how he's relating to others and how he's relating to the public.
0: I wouldn't ask you to name names about this, but amongst your colleagues, has there been any kind of trajectory in behind-the-scenes conversations from the time of the election to now as to how alarming his behavior is, how worthy it is to step into the public conversation and move for something to change?
4: Uh, Yes. Now, I'll I'll be very upfront that I'm not saying I have a completely objective view because I tend to be with colleagues who tend to agree with me. (laughs) Uh, So I'm I'm not saying I can give statistics, but yes, it has been growing concern. And people who before that I talked to and say, well, yeah, it's, you know, he is this, he is that, but let's, you know, whether they agreed with him or not politically, well, let's not go there. Are now saying we've got to go there. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody, but it's definitely moving in that direction, at least what I see among psychiatrists, psychologists, and other mental health professionals that I work with.
0: And has there been any changing opinion in those circles about how appropriate it is to be public about those feelings?
4: Yes, yes. I mean, uh, some people are still very hesitant uh, and don't want to put their name to it, but they encourage me to. Which is just fine. You're it. So, <laughs> no. Um, more people are saying things openly, and people who were questioning me or criticizing me in the past are now saying go for it. So, yeah, it's not universal, but I definitely see the move in that direction.
0: And what's concretely next for you and for anybody who's interested in, in pursuing an, an intelligent discussion about whether he should be removed and what that would take? Recommended reading, recommended websites?
4: Right. I think uh, there are two aspects. One aspect is, is there a cognitive problem? And that I don't have an opinion on. I'm not a neurologist, but I think it should be examined. Um And there you can read up on cognitive problems, dementia, all. but I don't think we're really at that place. I think more importantly, we are looking at personality dynamics. And yes, you can read up on narcissistic personality, and there are all the very nice checklists, which in public, he obviously meets. But I would look a little deeper into what is called impressionistic thinking, which is very simply that reality to the person is based on how they feel rather than based on facts, logic, and consistency. And there are a lot of writings on that within the literature on narcissism, but you can Google impressionistic thinking. It will take you in different places. But that's really the core of it, that his decisions are are made based on emotion of the moment rather than thought, logic, or any real strategy beyond how am I going to feel good in the next 10 minutes.
0: Got it. And before I let you go, any last thoughts you think people should be aware of following this?
4: Uh, yeah, I think that there's some of the dynamic we see right now where people are seeing in him what they're used to. People who have a relative who's had dementia saying, oh, he must have dementia. People who have a relative who had been narcissistic say, "Well, well, you know, it may be any of all of that. Let's leave that to a formal evaluation and let's focus on how is he functioning? Is he able to tell the truth? Is he able to be logical? Is he able to make a decision based on facts? The diagnosis, let's leave to afterwards.
0: That is Dr. David Reese. You can find him on Twitter at DMRDynamics. You can find his website, DMRDynamics.com. Hey, thanks very much for cutting into your holiday week for us. My pleasure, anytime. There's a whole group of mental health professionals who've moved out of the shadows and into the front lines of pushing for scrutiny into Trump's fitness to serve. So if you want to find out about that, just search on Duty to Warn. You will find that group. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. Desi and Brad will continue to enjoy a precious drop of freedom throughout this Independence Week. So I will see you next time around as well. I'm Angie Cuero. As ever, good luck, world.
2: I